So today, up at the retreat house on the seminary campus, I was thinking about all the retreats I've made up there over my 45 years as a priest. And a goal of any retreat, a goal of any kind of mission like this is really to respond, not just to hear, not even just understand, but respond to God's call, God's grace, whatever it is that God gives to us. And my mind immediately got stuck on the very first retreat I went to up there. We had been ordained the deacons the prior May, and now we'd come around to April again, and it was our pre-ordination retreat. And so at that retreat, we were told, leave all of our concerns about our ordination first mass, where we might get assigned for our first assignment, all the stuff that was going on in our lives, leave that all behind and listen to the Lord. And I took it seriously. Then we got a call. We need you down at the seminary for the ordination classes mass. And went, I didn't go. I was gonna stay there, listen to the Lord. Got in trouble because the rector and the cardinal wasn't, didn't notice I was there or noticed that I wasn't there, I should say, as the priest who spoke wanted to introduce me to everybody. So sometimes when we try to follow what we think the Lord is calling for us to do, to be, first of all, we gotta make sure we're doing it right. Probably I wasn't doing the right thing. And secondly, sometimes we do it right We're not instantly rewarded. That's not why we follow the Lord. So here we are. We've looked at what it means to hear God's call. We've tried to understand God's call. That's difficult to do. How do we as this parish community on the very cusp of Lent respond to God's call to be a people, a family of faith and make the kingdom of God a reality here and now, amongst ourselves, around the table of the Lord, and wherever the community needs take us here. So I don't know where else to begin, but begin by looking at what it means to be a family, because we're supposed to be a family of faith. So there are certain things about being a family, I think, that help us understand what it means to be a family of faith more. We have to start with our human experience and then work our way into much more of a sense of what God is asking us as a community of faith. Now I'm talking about family values. That phrase is too packed with political uh, weight. That's not what it's all about. Talking about what it means to be a family in the fullest sense of the word. And the two words that come to mind for me is unconditional love. It's really important to understand what that means. I told you last couple of nights a little bit about my sister, Anna Maria, who died 10 months before I was born, polio and those terrible epidemics in the 40s and the 50s. It was just awful. And there in the second grade uh, and all of this happening so quickly 
uh, that by weekends end, my sister was gone, how she made her first communion uh, on, uh, on her deathbed, how she was buried in her first communion dress, all of that. Well, I wasn't around for that. What I remember as a child was about every couple of months on Sunday after Mass, instead of coming home reading the funnies and sitting around until Sunday pasta was ready, Dad would put us all in his Chrysler Windsor Deluxe. And there, were no, there was no uh, Eisenhower Expressway at the time. So we took Washington Boulevard all the way west to Mount Carmel Cemetery. And in those days, Dutch Elms disease hadn't happened yet. So riding up the boulevard, it was like riding through a cathedral. The trees were so big and tall and their leaves would cross over and the dappled sun would shine through them. It was the most beautiful ride out west like that. My brothers and I would pile in the back seat. My brothers would start to pinch me. My self-defense was to say, Mom, I'm getting sick back here. So I got to sit up front with my mom and dad. That's how it worked. And we drive up there, and I knew exactly where we were going because right there at about Ogden and, and uh, Madison, there was a gigantic turtle wax turtle on top of a building. And we made that turn. I said, we're going out to the cemetery. We would drive out there. We'd have the radio on, and we'd be talking and joking. And then we'd get maybe a few blocks from the cemetery, and my dad would turn off the radio. And uh, we would turn into the cemetery off Roosevelt Road. And uh, my dad knew exactly where to go. Right turn, right turn, right turn, family plot. It was right there. My mom by this time has brought out his rosary. We're all very quiet in the car. My dad would open the trunk of the car, get out his watering pan and his little hand shovel and whatever he was going to do to weed around the grave. And he would get to work. My brothers would walk off and maybe throw a baseball around a little bit. I would hang on to my mother's side. I was so confused because at the age of six or seven or eight years old, when you drove into Mount Carmel Cemetery, if you turned left, all the names started with a vowel. That was the Irish side. If you turned right, all the names ended in a vowel on the gravestones. And we were turning right, and I would see all these Italian names, and in my little mind, only Italians must die. I saw nothing else but that. It scared me. And we would be there, and I'd see my mom start to cry, and I'd hear her start to quietly whisper her prayers. And then my dad would finish up his work, and not known for his patience, on those days he was patient. He would wait in the car for my mom. My brothers would get in the car. I would still hold her hand, and finally she'd turn, and we'd walk back in the car. We'd drive out. A few blocks away, the radio would get turned back on. Life would come back to normal. We'd go home, and mom would start getting Sunday pasta ready. That was part of the routine. And even as a youngster, I realized what incredible love my mother had for the daughter that she had lost. That's the unconditional love that conquers even death that I'm trying to explain and help us to look at a little bit tonight. And we see that through family. Now, not everybody defines family in the same traditional way. 
It really, we really don't. The image of family, the reality of family is changing greatly. Many more families now are dual income families, sometimes triple income families, people working two jobs, a lot of single family, single parent families. Um, the extended families, you know, my grandparents lived with us until they both died. That doesn't happen that much anymore. Um, and then no matter how our family is configured, time in a family is an incredible luxury because of those second jobs that they have to have because the work hours are longer and there's no choice to that, because there's less time or less money for vacations that we'd like to take. Fewer meals are eaten together. You know, you watch TV from the 50s and that's an unreal world. Uh, there is uh, Donna Reed. You know, first of all, she's cooking a, a wonderful six course dinner for Wednesday night. She's vacuuming the floor with her dress and her high heels and her pearls on. That doesn't exist anymore. My mom didn't wear clothes like that when she was cooking and doing it. And she didn't like to watch that either. She would get upset about it. Or father knows best. Dad would come home from work, much like Mr. Uh, uh, Rogers would take his sweater off, put it in the, uh, in the closet, and his attache case, and they'd sit down for dinner. And every child had a nickname. Our nicknames, my dad's nickname was, hey you, hey you, hey you. Those were our nicknames. You know, they had these sweet nicknames, Bunny, you know, Pixie, things like that. And Dad would solve all the problems, not only the children's problems, but Mom's problems as well. I don't know, that world probably never existed. Uh, but there certainly doesn't exist today. And we don't often go to church together as much as we should, some of us. One of the things I found hardest was watching parents drop their kids off if the kids' choir was singing or something, and they come back an hour later with their Starbucks cup in hand. And it really would bother me. And finally, I said something to somebody, not the person who had been holding the cup, and they said, you know, Father, sometimes that's the only hour they get alone without their children for a long time. Does that outweigh worshiping together? I don't know. I'm not going to judge anything. You know, uh, in the city, and maybe out here too, we would have a uh, before-school program and an after-school program. I would see some of our kids dropped off as early as 7 o'clock. The same kids picked up as 6 o'clock. They'd get them back in the family van. They would put their pods in their ears. They would start playing games. They'd drive through Burger King. They'd go home. Uh, they'd go into their room, and an hour later, they're in bed, and that's family life. No meal was shared at all. And when we don't gather around the table, the table of the Lord as well, family can't find the ways to express and have that unconditional love grow. And experts tell us without families, we would die. We really would. The famous experiment where they put um, monkeys in a controlled situation and some of them, they gave soft, cuddly, uh, monkey dolls as mothers and they thrived and the monkeys that were given robotic cold metal mothers they died and that was made more real by wonderful mother Teresa you know she got to be very well known in India for picking up the dying off the street and giving them a place to die with dignity 
clean sheets, whatever they needed. Well, Mother Teresa as well, people started dropping off their little babies there, abandoned babies. And she put together beautiful, clean, efficient nurseries and had the best of foods to feed them. And yet the babies were slowly turning their faces to the wall and dying. They wouldn't eat. And one of the things that made Mother Teresa saint was her understanding of the human soul. And so she said to her sisters, I don't care what you're doing. Every 15 minutes you stop and you go and you pick up a baby and you hold it and you cuddle it and you kiss it and you hug it and you hum to it and you sing to it and then you feed it, then you put the baby down. And the baby started to thrive. They needed to feel that love. They needed to feel that presence. It was as simple as that. We can also look at it from a negative point of view. In Chicago, those god-awful gang murders that go on and on and on. And we find their children shooting children, 14-year-old shooters, 15-year-old. And you check them out, and most of them don't have a strong family. The gang becomes their family. And pretty soon, they'll do anything that the gang leaders will tell them to do because they need to be a part of that family. It's not an excuse for what they do, but that's the reality that happens to them. And it speaks to what we are missing so very, very deeply in our society. We need family. Everyone needs to be part of a family, to have a family. That's part of what it means to be a human being. Every year at St. Josephine Parish, like so many parishes, we would put out giving trees. We'd have two Christmas trees with cards on it. You could take a card and whatever needed to be purchased, it was either for the homeless or for a different program or a shelter or whatever. When you brought it, you brought an ornament from home and put that ornament on the tree that replaced the cards. And they became our parish Christmas trees in the back of church. So it's New Year's Eve, and I'm celebrating Mass, and the crowd isn't real big. And after a while, as a priest, you get to kind of have a sixth sense. You can look around and say, she's going to be a problem tonight. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> you just kind of sense that. And I saw this woman walk in, and it was cold winter night, the December 31st, and she had a, a very light baseball jacket on and pretty threadbare to begin with. And wrapped in a blanket was her baby. And I thought, well, she's probably coming in just to warm up. That's okay. So we got through Mass. At the end of Mass, uh, she asked somebody where the bathroom was, and she went to the, into the bathroom, and I realized everybody else in church is gone now. Uh-oh, what if she doesn't come out of the bathroom? I'm thinking of all these things. So. But she does come out with her baby in her arms, and I just kind of watched her. I wasn't going to kick her out, rush her out the door. And she went out to one of the Christmas trees, and she was looking at the different ornaments on it. So I walked over and I said, aren't they pretty? And she said, they sure are. And she picked one out that was an angel. An angel, you know, blowing the trumpets, uh, you know, uh, glory to God in the highest thing. And I said, do you like that? And she said, yes. I said, you take that home with you. And she was thrilled. And so she uncovered 
the blanket her baby was in. Look at it, this beautiful, beautiful angel, honey. Look at it. And I looked down. There was no baby in there. It was just a ragged, old, dirty doll. My heart sank. My heart sank. That was her family. That was her need. That's all that she had. I, I was speechless. She walked out the door of the church, and I turned, and against the wall was a full-sized, life-sized crucifix. And I looked at the tree, and I looked at the crucifix, and I saw the relationship with what happens in December, what happens on Good Friday. They intricately hold together. They really and truly are. The need for family is so very, very important. And as life goes on, our family changes. Sometimes we recreate our family. A child marries out of one family, and they create another family of their own, and sometimes the families mesh together, and sometimes they don't mesh together. Sometimes distance makes a difference. Sometimes things that we don't even know makes a difference. Good friends of mine, a couple used to do pre-Cana with me. They would tell this story at pre-Cana, and the story was pretty basic. They said, you know, we got married, and the groom's mother was, was still alive, and the bride's mother was still alive, the fathers were dead, so grandmas were alive. And we didn't know what to do, so on Thanksgiving morning, we would tell the kids, now we're going to, we're going to Nana number one, don't eat too much. Because after that, we're going to Nana number two, and you're going to have another full meal there, and you're going to like it as much as you liked Nana number one meal. And this went on for years, and inevitably not grandmas, as grandmas do, with stuffing the food in the kids, and every year they would come home and the kids would get sick. So finally one year they made the decision, that's it. And after Thanksgiving, they called both nanas, both grandmothers, simultaneously. He called his mother, she called her mother, and their response was exactly the same. They said to their, their mothers, they said, listen, we're going to do Thanksgiving here from now on. You're welcome to come for the meal or you're welcome to come for coffee and pie afterwards, but it's just too hard with the children. And both Nana said the same thing. Been waiting for you to ask. Now I don't have to do it anymore. Families are like that. They, 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 they morph, they change. That's okay. If we believe in God, and there's nobody here that doesn't, I don't think, there is a natural tendency to come together. God is like a magnet that brings us together, the presence of God that is with us. But we don't come together to argue our beliefs, to say what you believe is wrong and what you believe is right. That can be done in a theology class or a lecture or something like that. We come together to share and to create the experience where God's love can be remembered and celebrated ritually. Primarily, that's the Mass and the sacraments. That's what gathers with us together, experiencing all of that together. In fact, the very latest uh, directives in the, in the sacramentary, the book that has the Mass prayer, says a Mass really shouldn't be celebrated privately with a priest all alone. It should, there has to be people there. It has to be a communal event together. And that's important. Because what do we bring to that Mass? We bring what we're hearing, we bring what we're understanding, we're bringing our stories, we're bringing all of that. We're the family of faith gathering together. 
about a block from St. Joseph Art Church in the city, the old uh, Santa Fe Railroad building, gigantic building, was turned into a nursing home senior residence. It was almost too big. Uh, it really wasn't effective. And we were the parish, because we were a block away, that would bring them the Eucharist and visit them regularly and be there for them however they needed us. And what would happen is when they would see me there, they would want to talk. And the nurses would kind of, you know, say, well, Father is busy or Father does have time. But I found out, didn't know it, the nurses were, you know, if the person that wanted to talk wasn't Catholic, they would say, well, we'll get your minister here. And I asked the nurses, I said, you don't have to do that. I'll talk to them. You know, that's no problem. She said, well, Father, you don't understand. Sometimes they don't have anything to say. It's all the more reason to talk to them. So I met a guy, a German guy, name was Hans Lempke, I'll never forget his name. He was Lutheran, and he told me a story. Uh, he had lived in Germany and been in Hitler's youth corps, and when it was a, you know, as a, a child was given a gun to help defend Berlin at the end, uh, he survived came to America as an architect. And he told me a story about his family and everything. And he, and he said to me, I want to become a Catholic. I said, now, why would you want to become Catholic in your 80s like this? And he had a good reason. I thought it might be because he just, then I would come and visit him regularly and talk to him. His reason was simple. He said, my, my maternal grandmother was Catholic. And they had a house, a summer house, in the Black Forest, overlooking a lake. And one of my greatest memories of all my life is, we would be in that house and my grandmother would pick me up and hold my face to the window. And it was beautiful. There would be like a spider web in the, outside the window with dew on it. It was like, with like diamonds. And we'd look out over and see the sun rising over the lake and, and, and the mists, mists coming up from the trees. And she would hold me and say, look, look, how can there not be a God when you look at that? And that stayed with him through all his time when he was in prison after the war, everything that he, because he was imprisoned in Russia, all that had happened, and now he decided it was time. So we didn't have a lot of time given his age and his health. It came time for him to, he'd already been baptized, so it was time for him to make his first Holy Communion. So we took him in his wheelchair because he had spinal cancer and wasn't walking. We brought him into church. We had his family there who were Lutheran but thrilled that it was happening. He made his Catholic First Holy Communion. The congregation in the parish stood and applauded him. He was now part of the family of faith. He had tears in his eyes. A month later, he died. Family called saying, we'd like to have the funeral at St. Josephath, and I said, sure. And I went to the music director, I said, let's put together a nice service for him. Uh, probably won't be a big crowd. We announced on Sunday that Hans had died, the funeral was gonna be on Monday, and I walked into church on Monday, and church was full. And afterwards, I said to the people from the parish, why are you here? I didn't think anybody else would show up. So they all showed up a community of faith, only in church twice in his life, for his first communion and for his funeral. 
surrounded by a family of faith. That's what we gotta be. You know, you can't just build a building, put a sign on it that says church, and an instant family of faith is formed. It doesn't work that way. How do we make that happen? How do we respond to what God is asking of us? What do we do? We go back to the question we heard in Scripture, John's Gospel, do you love me? It's one of my favorite passages from Scripture. The title of my first book was, Do You Love Me? And so, Cardinal George, God rest his soul, had a meeting for the priests in the first vicariate where we were, Bishop Conway, God rest his soul, through the meeting. It could be a question and answer session to get to know our new cardinal, he was new at the time, uh, to get to know him better. I said, question and answer, this should be fun. Well, the bishop put a committee together of very safe priests to do the questions. So we got there, I didn't have high expectations. The microphone was here, so I went and sat way back there. Didn't wanna be tempted to make a face or raise my hand or anything, but the microphone wouldn't work here. So they put it way back there and turned all the chairs around. So now I'm looking right up the Cardinal's nose, right there, I'm right there. And he was talking and a few times he would say things, he was very honest, he said, you know, I'm Teutonic, I'm German, I don't get very emotional, I don't show my feelings very much. And meanwhile, the questions that were written up for him to answer was, you know, who's your favorite pope ever? What's your favorite scripture passage? And I kind of muttered, if they ask him his sign and his favorite color, I'm gonna leave. But he said his favorite scripture passage was, do you love me from John's gospel? So I perked up. And he said a few things about it that I can't remember, didn't stay with me. And the conversation went on, and soon the questions ended. And there was about 20 minutes left, so Bishop Conway said, questions from the floor. Because when, when, he, when he said, he said, favorite passages, do you love me? My friends next to me elbowed me because they knew that was the title of my book. Well, Bishop Conway, didn't become a bishop being a dumb guy, he wouldn't call on me. He called on everybody else. Now there's five minutes left, one hand left. So I got called on. And I said, Cardinal George, you said your favorite scripture passage is, do you love me? Um, so I need to ask you, do you love me? Do you love your priest here in Chicago? Because he had been pretty critical of us when he came. And he gritted his teeth. And he said, I told you I'm German. I don't share my feelings like that. Now, everybody laughed. Grassy got put down. Grassy should have shut up. Grassy didn't shut up. Grassy said, but I'm Italian. I need to hear if you love me. And I said, you know, you're gonna go home in your car tonight and you're gonna have Wagner playing on the radio. I'm gonna go home in my car and have Puccini playing, which wasn't the truth, but it sounded good. And I said, do you love us? Do you love me? And he said, I'll answer like it says in the gospel, yes, I do. 
Now, is that good enough for you? Not if I have to ask you two more times like they did in the scripture passage. <laughs> so I get in my car to drive home and I'm, you idiot grassy, what, what, what good did you do? That was stupid. That night I got home and there were, by the end of the night, there were at least 50 emails and voicemails thanking me, including one from Bishop Conway, thanking me for elevating the conversation. That was like in the fall, somewhere around the first week of December, I'm in my office and the call comes through and the secretary says, there's a call, it's Cardinal George. Oh no, what did I do now? And he said, damn, I said, yes, Cardinal, he said, I'm working on my Christmas sermon, are you? And I said, well, it's not December 24th yet, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Rossi, shut up. And he said, well, I just want you to know I'm going to preach about love. Thank you very much. I said, you're welcome. So maybe something sank in, sank in. Because the next year we had the meeting again. And in a year's time, about half the priests are transferred to different vicariates. So half the guys at the meeting are, are new. And I decided, well, I don't know where the best place to sit is. So I sat right in the middle, so I wouldn't be closest no matter what happened. And he starts the meeting. He said, now before I, I, we start the agenda of the meeting, I just want to share one thing with all of you, that I really love Don Grassi. <laughs> Half the people there who had, weren't there the year before going, what the heck was that all about? We got to love one another with an unconditional love. That's really, 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 really important. And uh, Hans Lemke's story is a story of how that came late in life. So many of us were born into this family of faith. Maybe not this particular parish, but that's where we're at now, and that's so very, very important. So we've got to answer that question that Jesus is asking us. The Lenten cross is up here, beautiful. That cross is screaming the question, do you love me? I'm willing to die for you, do you love me? So let's look at family of faith in families and see what parallels we can come up with. That's, that's uh, really, really uh, important. First thing, families create, protect, and nurture life safely in all its stages. Birth, childhood, teens, adulthood, old age. It, it really is a way that families do their task. We nurture life in all its stages. The family of faith has to do that. I would watch my brother and sister-in-law, their youngest daughter was born very, very prematurely, very tiny and they would put her on the school bus, and her backpack was bigger than she was. And when she sat down, you saw the top of her head, she couldn't even look out the window. And I would watch them watch her drive off. And they were, her, their love was going with her. They wanted to mainstream her so she would be able to deal with society, and she turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful adult in her life now. Family of faith has to do the same thing. We have to be there for everybody. You know, we used to call religious education, we used to call it CCD, remember that? Anybody remember that? You know what CCD used to stand for? Communion confirmation done. Actually, it was, that's not what it stood for, but that's what people thought. Our faith growth doesn't end 
when we're done with those sacraments of initiation. Our faith is for everybody of all ages. We involve people of all ages. Uh, I was gonna wait till the end to show you this. I'm gonna show you this now. I was in the sacristy beforehand and they were talking about sleep and heavenly peace, the ministry of making beds. What an incredible ministry. I am I'm, I'm in awe of what the parish is doing here. And, and I was being shown some pictures. You can't see it from where you are. It's a great picture. It's everything set up to start making the beds here on your own parish property, all the tools. But what I like about the picture, you got people of every age there. You've got some of the seventh graders from uh, confirmation class. You've got other teens from the mission trips. You've got all people ready to share God's unconditional love. Just one of the ways in the parish that that happens here. That's what it's all about. That's a story that I'll tell next parish I do that at. You want an example? I've got an example of a parish that does that. Our family of faith has to be open to people of all ages. When I was at St. Joseph on my first assignment, we had our parish council and we would have our meetings. And at the end of each meeting, I would do a go around. Rate this meeting, A, B, C, D, F. Was it worth your while being here? That came from my community organizing training. I made a mistake of scheduling a meeting for the night I was flying home from a vacation. Not a good night for a meeting. And so we had our meeting and I thought we had accomplished nothing. So I started the rating and I gave us an F. So we didn't accomplish anything here. We didn't solve anything here. It was a waste of my time and years. Then I turned to Anne sitting next to me who had been present, president of the Married Ladies Auxiliary so long that they wanted to change their name to the Widowed Ladies Auxiliary. And she smiled. She said, I am so happy to be here. I'm so happy to see these young parishioners here, the young families that were moving in and being a part of our parish and bringing new life to our parish and our school. I give us an A. And next to her was a trader T-R-A-D-E-R, from uh, working in the money markets downtown. Big, tall guy. Uh, He and his wife had had their first child. And and he said, you know, when I got married, I said I'd come back to the church. And I didn't. Then I said I can have my first child come back to the church, and I didn't. And then I said when my child can make her first communion, I'd come back to the church, I didn't. Then we moved into this parish and I've come back to the church. I wanna thank all you seniors who have been here before us, who have left us this beautiful church and more importantly, this beautiful community of faith to be with. Name of all of us new parishioners, I'm so grateful. Then this big hunk of a guy gets up and gives Anne a kiss. You know how many seniors she called that night to say what happened. It was a wonderful moment and I learned you should, I should be the last one to rate it, not the first one to rate it. A moment of this family coming together across all ages and everything. And just one quick aside, and I hate to say it, but shame on us when children and teens are not safe in our churches or schools. Shame on us, shame on us. Second thing, a family is where we learn so much. 
We learn language. We learn how to walk. We learn values. Think about everything you already knew before you started kindergarten or preschool. We learned so much before all that time. We really did. Family, we learned so much there, and we continue to learn from our family. Stories I told you about my dad in the store and his generosity, he kept teaching me those things in his life. Family of faith is where we learn about God that doesn't end when we're done with school, like I said. Family of faith is where we learn to to take what is happening in our lives and put it into the context of what we believe to make the kingdom of God real. This is very, very important. Our family, no surprise to I'm sure, when we would gather for the holidays and we'd finish the meal, we would sit around and share stories well into the night. And as the family grew, two things happened. The kids got their own table and we adults were at the big table. The other thing that happened was you couldn't serve that many people formal style, so everything became buffet. And all of a sudden, the kids were going first. I turned to my brother's kid, I said, you can see that happening with dad and our uncles and aunts, they would never have allowed that, but we did, the kids went first. Well, one night we were talking and all of a sudden, a couple of the older nieces and the oldest nephew came and sat with us. And the dynamics was interesting, they listened, And then all of a sudden, they started adding their stories. They didn't stay the whole time, but they were there for a while. When I left, I turned to my brothers and my sister-in-laws. I said, this holiday is a blessed day. We did our job. They know what it means to share, what it means to be family. And they're going to continue that in their lives. And now that's the generation that has the holidays. My nieces and nephew, they have the holidays, and we gather at their homes for that. And having said that, family of faith is where we can always return home and feel safe. How many of us have had the experience of just feeling lives are taken out of our control when we're in the hospital and you get home? That great feeling of being home, it's safe here. When we went away to school and got homesick, coming back home after that, Family we turn to when one of our relationships breaks down and we're sad or we lose a loved one and that kind of thing's happening to us. Um, When I got out of the hospital this last time, after everything that happened, I said, I just wanna go back to the parish, my family of faith. And the parish was ready to celebrate its centennial We had done all the fundraising before I was hospitalized. We had reached our goal. We had a lot of great celebrations the whole year. And that was going to be the rededication of the church. And I was recovering in my apartment, not at the rectory, and I wanted to go. And the cardiac rehab team, they were a little bit concerned. I said, listen, I promise you, if I go and I don't feel strong, I'll have our retired pastor, who we all love dearly, he'll have a homily ready in case I can't preach. But if I can, I want to. And the opening hymn started, and it was our parish theme, all are welcome, all are welcome in this place. And my heart started to pump strong. 
We got up and heard the readings. I turned to Father Bill Keneally. I said, I'm going to do this. And got up and went up to the high pulpit, the old-fashioned church. Got up there and looked at the people. People very graciously applauded me for being there, or at least applauded that I could handle the six steps, whatever it was. And uh, I looked in the back of the church. Now, my head cardiac rehab nurse was a Filipina. She was Presbyterian, as it turned out. And she was worried about me. I looked up and she was standing in the back of the church holding her kit, just in case. It was very reassuring, I gotta tell you. It really and truly was. But I needed to be there. We need to come home. And there are people in your own families, people, neighbors that you know, other friends, that need to come home to church. And this is an exceptional place I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it. It wouldn't be fair for me to say that to you. So invite them, bring them, bribe them, take them out to breakfast afterwards. Special liturgy, something happening here. If they can't put their foot in the water yet at liturgy in church, take them to the hall. If they can't deal with that, take them to a parish function. Have them build a bed for gosh sake. Something that can bring them back. Family brings family back together when we need to do it. And it is a place, if we do it right, this family of faith, responding to God, will feel safe. One of the first weddings I did as a pastor, a great young man, his wife uh, was Lutheran, he was Catholic. They loved each other so much. They had a beautiful baby daughter. The daughter was about six months old and the mother got up and went into the bathroom and dropped dead. And they had no idea what it was, never really found out. Uh, and uh, this young father has this daughter all by himself, and he's despondent and he's lost, and he's angry at God. So he took his daughter with him literally around the world, searching, searching for a family of faith, searching for God. He went to Europe to the old cathedrals and the old places. He went to the Holy Land, the roots of our faith. He went to the, to the, the, uh, to the Arab countries. He went uh, to China and Japan looking at ancient religions. And he came back exactly a year later. There he was in church with his daughter. He said, after all that, all I knew was this is home. This is my family of faith. And I see him every once in a while now because I'm not around there that often. And his daughter is married and she looks exactly like her mother. Just incredible. We need to have that place to come home to even though there are times people will go away and search. Good chance that they'll come back. Families also let us go, don't they? The mother bird pushing the chick out of the nest so it can fly. Families have to let go. They can't be a good, strong family if they don't. Very, very important. You know, I told you the story about my dad, how he couldn't deal with his daughter's death, how he couldn't call her by name, uh, how he said her name on his deathbed. It's hard sometimes to let go, but we really have to be able to do that. We really do. 
Our family of faith lets us go as well. Nobody's forced to come here. It's not good to force people to come to church. Okay, you got a child, that's a different story. As long as you're under my roof, yeah, you can make demands, things like that. Uh, but it's, uh, there's gotta be a point to it. Before my dad died, a week before, you know, I, I visited him and gave him permission to die. I can't tell you the number of times I've done that, anointed somebody. Remember another guy, seven adult children, his wife had died the year before, and I went into his bedroom and I said, what are you fighting? He said, I'm worried about my children. I said, they're wonderful children. They're gonna do great in life. You've done everything you can for them. It's okay. <coughs> it's okay to die. Invited the kids in to say goodbye. Driving home, got the call, dad passed. People sometimes need permission and need to know that it's okay. I, I, I can, at least a dozen times I've done that for people. I told that story to my brother and he said, do me a favor. If I'm lying there in bed, don't say it's okay to die. I don't want to hear that from you. I said, we'll wait and see. That's the same brother who called the undertaker on me, so it switched around, I guess, a little bit. Family is where we can under, be ourselves and not worry about what anybody else thinks. That's unconditional love. What do I mean by that? It's that old robe you wear at home that no outsider will ever see. It's the way you are comfortable at home, what is there for you. Home is where we can be where we are and not worry about anyone else. And that's what the family of faith has to do. We've gotta be who we are here. It's very important. My first assignment was St. John D. LaSalle Parish, 103rd and King Drive, middle-class community that had just flipped over from being an all-white community to an all-African-American community. And there was a period of about a year where it was, uh, it was a messy switching. The pastor wasn't a much help with it all. And I got a call there, and it was a, a, an adult male, he said, Father, uh, can you come and start bringing communion to my mother, or at least hear her confession? She's getting up there in age and she can't get out, and I said, sure. So I visited her in her home, uh, physically not strong, but a force of nature kind of person, African-American woman, and she told me her story. She said she was born a Baptist. She moved up to the Chicago area on the west side of the city, to make a life for her and her family. She worked as a nurse's aide in the hospital, and she, would li she lived in an apartment building literally across the street from a Catholic church. And she saw what a welcoming community of faith that was on the, on the west side, and so she started going there with her children, and she converted and she became Catholic. And as life got a little better for her, she bought a simple little home in the, in the Pullman neighborhood there. Uh, and brought her children there, but the neighborhood was changing racially, and the parish was not accepting of black people. And she watched as her children, teenagers, were getting more and more alienated because they were yelled at and mocked and spit at on their way walking to church. And when they got to church, the ushers would hold them back. They could only go to communion after the white folks. 
And this broke this woman's heart. So she got the courage one day and she said to the pastor, I need to meet with you. And he set up a meeting time on Sunday afternoon right after the last mass. And she went to the rectory door and she rang the doorbell. He opened the door, he would not let her in. What can I do for you? He said, Father, I'm really upset. My children are losing their faith. They're being laughed at, they're being mocked. Why do we have to go to communion last? You're an evil person with evil thoughts. Go into church and say three Our Fathers and three Hail Marys and ask for God to forgive you. And he closed the door. She did not go into church. She left the church. This is 18 years later. And now she wants to confess her sin of not going into church and saying those prayers. And I said to her, I want your forgiveness on behalf of a church that treated you in a way you just should not have been treated. It was so sad. That's the antithesis of what church should be. Family is where we share common stories, traditions, customs that are special to us. We had in our family what my brothers and I dubbed decades later, the ordeal of food. Be Christmas, New Year's, Easter, Thanksgiving primarily. I don't know how the heck my mom did it. We were all men in the family but her. There weren't microwave ovens. And she would cook a meal for the holidays for over 30 of us. My dad would invite some of the employees from the store. There was extended family. My dad and uncle were brothers. My mom and aunt were sisters. And, uh, and so two brothers married two sisters. My mom's sister would show up five minutes before the meal, put an apron on, and serve the meal. And one year she told my dad what a... My dad said to her, what, you baked the best turkey I've ever seen. And my mom didn't talk to her sister for, or to her husband for a, for a good few months. He didn't quite get what he had said. But what would happen in those holidays was we would gather around all the tables extended through the living room, through the dining room, into the kitchen. And out would come first the soup, either Italian wedding soup or a minestrone soup, homemade of course. Then out would come platter after platter of the antipasto. Again, owning the grocery store helped on this. My dad had all this stuff in stock. But it would be slices of prosciutto, capodacol, salami, soppressatas, uh, mortadella, things like that, beautiful, delicious meats. There would be the Italian cheeses, the provolone, the mozzarella, the, uh, uh, all the wonder, uh, wonderful different cheeses, uh, um, the blue cheese, the gorgonzola. There would be the homemade rolls to go with that. My mom would have pickled all sorts of different uh, peppers to go with it. In itself could be a meal, and that was the appetizer. And then that was followed by the, the salad, a huge salad with homemade Italian dressing in that. And then out would come the special pasta, not the regular Sunday pasta, but homemade orecchietti, the little ears, or homemade ravioli, or homemade lasagna. And out would come the platters of meat that cooked in the sauce to give the sauce its flavors. Pork neck bones, veal neck bones, beef neck bones, 
oxtails, meatballs, sausage, pig feet, bowl after bowl, and we'd be eating that meal. My brothers would bring their girlfriends, and my dad would look over these girls that came in and say, she's too skinny, she's not gonna make it through this. He was usually right. After all that was over, my mom cleared the dishes, and we'd sit there, and two minutes later, the dishes washed would come back out, and now the American part of the meal would start. Thanksgiving turkey, Christmas ham, Easter ham or lamb, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, corn, and for some reason, Brussels sprouts on the menu. And the girls would look at this in panic. And I remember one of my brother's girlfriends putting uh, one piece of turkey on her plate and spreading it out and chopping it up to look like she ate a whole meal. I remember another girl getting into this heated, wonderful conversation with my grandmother who spoke not a word of English, but that way she could keep passing the dishes and not putting anything on her plate. And then there was a third girlfriend who tried to eat all the food and keep up with us, and she excused herself from the table, and we never saw her after that the rest of the day. That was the ordeal of food. It was a tradition in our family, something that was very special to us. Our family of faith, I'm suddenly gotten very hungry. Our family of faith is, we come home to traditions in our faith. Our Catholic Church is filled with wonderful, beautiful traditions. There are sacraments, there are liturgy, there's the beauty in which the way things are celebrated and presented that sometimes because of familiarity we take for granted, but they're so fulfilling, they're so filling, they can fill us with so much grace, but grace we can't get too much of. We can't overfill with grace like we can overfill with food. And sometimes it's a simple moment. My parish family, their son was getting married. Both parents were in the choir, wonderful family. And it was a pretty fancy wedding. The bride had a very fancy dress on. People were dressed to the hilt. And I'm looking at the groom, the son of this couple, and he's got this kind of old-fashioned coat on didn't even look like it was part of a suit, and I couldn't figure it out. What's going on here? Well, what he did, I found out later, that was the coat his father wore at his wedding and had been kept in the closet. To honor his father, he wore that coat. What a touching thing. He knew he didn't look, you know, super special in it, but he wanted to say something to his parents. Those are traditions, those are things that that are so, so important that help us to respond to God, that nourish us and feed us, and that's how he was able to do that. Family is where memories are storehoused in a special way. They really and truly are. So, I was in Oak Lawn and gave uh, a similar talk and I talked about my sister Anna Marie, as I told you the other day, yesterday I think it was, and, and there was the nun who taught my sister in second grade, the last person, adult, living that saw my sister alive. And she it was an incredible 
And she came up to me after me. I said, do you know who I am? I said, really, I have no idea. And she told me, and she told me the story, the details of that last day in the classroom, my sister getting a headache and a high fever and a stiff neck. Those three together were a terrible sign that meant possibly polio. My dad rushing uh, to get there in time to follow the ambulance to, to Cook County Hospital, all that going on, um, the, all that happening. And, and one of the things she said to me, she said, you know, I, I pray to your sister every day. I said, what do you mean? She was a saint. I said, what do you mean? She said, I was a brand new teacher. I was like 19 years old and I had 60 kids in the class. And if I had a bad day, she would come up to me after school and say, sister, I know it was a tough day. And she would sit down at the piano and play the piano. I knew my sister played the piano. I thought she played chopsticks. You know, she was seven years old. And my mom would say, oh no, she had recitals. And that's what Sister Mercy said. She had recitals, she played beautifully. And she said, you know, your sister used to go up to the eighth grade to read, she was so bright. I said, yeah, probably read her little first grade reader. No, she was reading on the eighth grade level. I thought my mom had exaggerated. So I'm learning these things about my sister. And then I realized driving home, you know, I said, I wish I could have been there. I would love to have known my sister before she died. I wish I could have been there to hold my mom in her sorrow. And I nearly ran the car up a pole because I was there. My mom was pregnant with me. I was born 10 months after my sister died. Uh, My mom's sorrowing blood was flowing through me in that pregnancy. No wonder I was so close to my sister. Uh, And somehow all those memories were able to come to me through Sister Marian, mercy. Um, And then the next year I go back to the same parish to give a different talk and she's there and I thanked her for what she did for me and my brothers and our family. And she says she's getting Alzheimer's now and can't remember much of anything. So what a blessing and a grace that was. It really and truly was. And it made me feel so much closer to my sister who I never met. You get the idea. There's so much more that could be said about families. You would have your own stories about how your families really mirror what the family of faith could be. Is every family perfect? No. There are always problems, always issues, always concerns. There's always a skeleton or two in the closet. That's okay. Uh, Doesn't have to be perfect, but it is who we are and it can help us. And if, if our immediate family hasn't done that, if we grew up in tough situations, We find families in some way or another. It doesn't always have to be through blood. That's really important. Don't want anybody to sit here feeling left out. That wasn't my family. We're all part of a family in some way or another. That really and truly is true. And we gather around the altar. And around the altar we are fed physically, the consecrated host, intellectually, what the scriptures mean, emotionally, the presence of God's love in my heart, and all that spiritually, what it means to us. I am blessed at this point in my life in retirement. Middle of the week on Wednesday, I go to St. Scholastica's monastery. I say, Mass for those retired sisters. I pray more in that half hour with them than any other time in my life in the course, through the course of the week. I really and truly do because they're such wonderful women of faith. They keep teaching me how to pray. They're so very important to me. So the question comes down to, after all my talking these days, 
How do you in this church, at this moment in your history, become a family of faith even more than you are? It's by answering an affirmative every time you are called to do so, answering that question in the affirmative, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. This building is not what makes us church. It's a beautiful church building. It's not what makes us church. It's the people sitting around you right now who, like you, are trying to hear God's call, trying to respond to it, trying to understand us. Um, Very, 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 very important. Trying to plug your own stories into the stories I've been trying to tell. You need each other to love unconditionally. We can try to listen. We can only do that for ourselves. We can try to understand in the depths of our heart, but really to to, to respond to God's call, we need each other. That's really important. How do we do this? We've got one great example, and we have a lot, but one example I really like in Scripture. That's the story of my good friend Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is one of the greatest characters in the gospel. Zacchaeus is a little crook. He really is. He's making his money off of people all the time. And he, he, he's probably the first rapper. He wears all this gold bling and everything. And so he's always trying to figure out an angle. And he hears this guy, he's a preacher, he's a healer, he raises the dead. He's coming into town. Zacchaeus, I gotta meet this guy. What am I gonna get out of this guy? So Zacchaeus comes and he's a little guy and there's a crowd around Jesus. He can't see him, so Zacchaeus climbs a tree. And he's looking down at Jesus and he's trying to hear what Jesus is saying and he stops and he points, Jesus points at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, how does he know my name? Zacchaeus, I mean to eat at your house today. Oh my God, oh my God. You could see him falling out of the tree, lifting up his fancy linen gown, running home and telling the servants, the best of what we got. (coughs) I'm gonna get something out of this guy today. And Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus pumps himself up, looking like the rooster in a hen house. And Zacchaeus, as they're eating the meal and Jesus is enjoying himself, Zacchaeus turns to Jesus and says, if I've defrauded anybody, if. You can see Jesus almost spit the wine out when he says if. If I've frauded anybody, I will repay him back four times. And Jesus is smiling thinking, not saying, defrauded them 10 times, you're gonna still come six times out ahead. You know, Zacchaeus is not gonna be a fool about it. But what happens? Jesus breaks bread with him. He's not perfect, he's far from it. But maybe that, that instance makes a difference in Zacchaeus' life. Maybe he becomes one of those, if not real close to Jesus when Jesus is sharing the Beatitudes on the side of the hill, but off in the distance listening a little bit. Maybe something has sunk in. Maybe he started looking around and saying, this stuff doesn't mean anything to me. These are good people, I wanna get to know them. Maybe he invites some of them to his home for dinner. Maybe he becomes part of a family of faith. Why not? Scripture doesn't tell us that doesn't happen. Why not let it happen? Jesus is pointing to each of us in church today. I mean to stay at your house tonight 
and be part of your family. That's the message. That's what Jesus is saying. So what do we do to share this unconditional love that Jesus offers? To make this parish an even stronger family of faith? If you're capable, build some beds. If you're not capable, pray for one another. Be there, support, smile when you share the sign of peace. Welcome each other. Stop for a minute. We don't have to all the time rush right to our cars. Very, very important. Continue to share what is really a never-ending story. It's a never-ending story. Volunteer where you can. Get involved deeper. I was in a parish and a young woman was the only person in the RCIA. She had a daughter. And after she went through the RCA, she said, I want to do something. And there was a senior citizen in the parish uh, who was having a terrible life. She was a music teacher in the public schools. She was afraid of doctors because her mother had been pronounced dead once when she wasn't. A friend was giving her a permanent. Some of the solution got in her eye. The eye got infected. She would not go to a doctor. But the first time I visited her, her face was just so malformed and looking terrible. And when I said, we got to get you a doctor, she kicked me out of the house. So I sent this nurse's aide to her. It took her a while before she accepted her, and she would wash the eye for her a little bit. Well, the woman finally, the infection spread to the brain, and she died. And at the funeral, the only two people there was the nurse's aide and her daughter. They were this woman's family of faith at the end of life. And when I told her that to the the young woman, she said, no, she was our family of faith. We weren't just that for her. This person got it, what it all meant. And you know, all of us can do things. We all have some talents and abilities. When I was at St. Joseph, the old timers were the Holy Name Society, the guys. And they've been the same group of about 10 or 12 guys for at least 30 years. And they would gather one Thursday a month or one Friday a month, and they would start with the Holy Name prayer. Anybody got anything on the agenda? No. They went to their locked closet, opened it, brought out the booze and the cards, and they played cards every night. And then they kept saying, put something in the bulletin so somebody will join. So I did. And we had a new young teacher in the school, and her husband came. And I wanted to watch this unfold. Her husband came because he had more piercings than you wanted to imagine. And because he was coming to a holy name meeting, you can't make these things up. Instead of putting little circles or little balls in his ear and his tongue, he put little crosses. He was covered with crosses. And I'm watching these old timers look at him. Well, God bless them, they accepted him. He played cards with them for three years until they moved away. I was so proud of those guys. It was absolutely incredible. I didn't expect they happen. Um, what we got to do is build each other up, not tear each other down. One of the beautiful things we were able to do at St. Joseph's when I was there, they had torn down the school behind the church and they didn't have enough money to fix up the land. It was weeds and an old cyclone fence that was falling apart four or five abandoned cars, things like that. 
And uh, we were able to build a park. Being Italian, it had a nice big fountain in it. Really, really nice. Uh, Parenthetically, when I retired, they named the park after me, the Grassy Knoll. (laughs) It was changed to the the Grassy Park, that's okay, I understand. Uh, I kind of liked it. Uh, In any case, I would go and sit in the park after dinner working on my homilies. Well, one Monday morning I got a call. And one of the things you learn early as a pastor is you don't take calls on Monday morning. They're never good. But for some reason I took a call and it was a neighbor, a new neighbor, moved into the gentrifying neighborhood. And she was upset because all the street people that we would feed that came to the door between nine and noon, uh, ramen soup and uh, cookies in the winter, can of pop cookies in the summer, that kind of thing. Um, They were nothing but a bunch of drunks, she said. And they were destroying the neighborhood and scaring her. And so I listened, I said, listen, they're probably more scared of you than you are of them. But here's the number of the uh, commander at the 9th district. And you just tell him you're calling for me if you feel any way threatened by them and he will have a cop here in a minute. About a week later, I'm sitting in the park on my homily. It's after dinner, it's a nice warm day. I'm gonna close my eyes and uh, think a little deeper. I fall asleep. All of a sudden I'm being jostled by two of Chicago's finest. Get up, okay? Uh, You gotta move on, we're sorry, but you gotta move on. I said, why? We got a complaint from Father Grassi, move on. I said, I'm Father Grassi. Well, you've got to dress a little better than that, Father, was the last thing. You know, people can be small. We can't let ourselves get small with them. We've got to believe there's a place here for every single one of us and more. This is your church. Believe me when I say to you, you're blessed with your pastor the associates, the retired pastor, with the staff, the ones that I've gotten to meet, their generosity of spirit, their joy and their warmth. This is a place where God is, that's for sure. And you're called now to bring whatever gifts and talents you can here. Like we said the other day, tomorrow, ashes, we gotta do better. We, and we will do better. All we have to do is get in touch with those stories that are ours, not cop out, not make excuses. After all was said and done that I shared with you about my sister, when I was facing a really dark time, you know, back-to-back surgeries, a month and a half apart, cancer and heart was not in a good place, I did a lot of praying and I did a lot of bargaining, which is not always a good thing to do. But I I really wanted my sister to know how much she meant to me even though I never met her. I prayed to her. And I was still in recovery in my apartment, not back at the parish. And a couple wanted to call, come to talk to me. I had told them any time. They had lost their fourth grade son in the 
in a terrible accident in New Buffalo in the water. There was the drift, uh, the, uh, the current uh, that, you know, that came out and the dad couldn't hold on to his fourth grade son's hand. And by the time the life guy got there, he grabbed the father, but the son died. And the parish gathered around them and supported them so beautifully. But you know, then time passes and they're still dealing with it. And I got a call saying, we need to talk to you. And I wasn't in any position to talk to anybody because I was so centered on my own issues. I said, sure, come on over. And I started cleaning up a little bit so it didn't look too bad. And I had not gone through all of my mail and there was a copy of Catholic Digest magazine. I don't read Catholic Digest magazine. What's that doing there? And I start paging through it and in the middle of the magazine is a picture of my sister and a story that I had written about her that was in one of my books. And a year or so ago, they had asked for permission to print the story. I'd forgotten all about it completely. And there it was. My sister was with me. We had a wonderful conversation with those parents, letting them know that it's okay to feel everything that they're feeling, but to always remember that they're not alone. And most of all, to remember that their son is with them, just as my sister stayed with our family, has stayed with me as well. Things like that can happen. So let's all leave the past in the past, but still carry the beautiful stories with us. Let's all be there for one another. If anything comes out of this mission, a little bit of a commitment, not much, just to be all you can be for your loved ones, for this community of faith. When you come to Mass, if it's tomorrow for Ash Wednesday, if it's next Sunday, Listen, feel, be present to all that God has here for you in the liturgy, all that it can mean. And then just wait. If not this week, maybe another time, God will touch you. I do believe that. So I ask you to please kneel or sit. And this time, I'm going to be totally quiet. I'm going to sit over here. Just listen to see if God has anything to say to you.
Jesus tells us he has given us so much, Jesus asks us, share what I've given you. Listen, do you love me? Do you love me? Let us be able to say, Lord, you know I do. So in a very special way tonight, as the mission ends, as Lent is upon us, I thank you for the gift of allowing me to be with you and to share what I was able to share with you. Um, I pray that not my words, but the Spirit's fill your heart, the Spirit's words fill your heart and help you to be all that you can be. I pray that God's peace be with all of you. I pray that you share that peace one with each other. For those of you facing problems, illnesses, concerns, that you know that God's love is with you. I pray that you start sharing your stories if you don't already do. They are so precious. That's really true. And I ask God to bless you now. Bless you always. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please stand now and exchange, exchange that sign of peace one with each other. Peace be with you all. We'll start our closing hymn and there will be some refreshments in the narthex afterwards. God has chosen me, God has chosen me to bring new sight to those seeking for light. God has chosen me, chosen me, and to tell the world that God's kingdom is near to remove oppression and break down fear. Because his time is near, God's time is near, God's time is near, God's time is near. God has chosen me, God has chosen me, to set a light a new fire. God has chosen me, to bring to birth a new kingdom of earth. God has chosen me, chosen me. And to tell the world that God's kingdom is near, to remove oppression and break down fear. Yes, God's time is near, God's time is near, God's time is near. God